I'd like to address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. Poetical Puffing. In this episode, we will explore more of the assorted news and gossipy tidbits contained in P.T. Barnum's March 1, 1846 letter to his American museum manager, and capture follow-ups he added to the letter two days later. We'll pick up again by starting with the human resource issues, and then move on to other news regarding attractions. Fortis Hitchcock must have told Barnum of some concerns he had with employees at the museum, even with his senior staff like Emile Guillaudot and Professor Swift. In addition, there was a troubling situation that had come up with a female employee, who may have been a performer. Barnum had met Swift in England in 1844 or early 1845, and hired him to go to the American Museum to devise the setup for the new cutting-edge projection equipment he had purchased in London. This was to be a featured attraction in the museum's lecture hall, the term Barnum used for his theater space. Unlike Swift, Emile Guillaudot was a longtime fixture at the museum, having served as the naturalist and taxidermist since the museum's early years when it was owned by John Scudder. Guillaudot saw to it that the innumerable displays of animals, both stuffed and living, were properly arranged or managed, and periodically refreshed. Barnum's European travels included purchases of specimens such as bird skins and animal hides for Guillaudot to mount, but the latest one Barnum was sending to him was unusual. Monsieur Guillaudot's next taxidermy assignment would undoubtedly prove to be something of a challenge, as Barnum had a vision for a specific pose. The smallest of the small ponies that pulled General Tom Thumb's coach had died, and it was both a favorite and very small which Barnum felt was something they should capitalize upon. So he decided to have the pony's hide preserved and then send it to New York on board the ship Agnes. Barnum had mentioned the death of the pony to at least a couple of other correspondents, but to Hitchcock, the news was in the context of instructions for mounting the pony skin and advice on how to promote the finished figure. Bear in mind that the art and science of taxidermy was not yet sophisticated. Poses were not convincingly natural, and whether Guillaudot was clever enough to succeed in creating the desired illusion of motion would be interesting to know. None of his work survives, due to the museum fires. In Barnum's letter to Hitchcock, he explained the look he wanted, writing, 
In the same vessel is a box containing the skin of the pony which belonged to General Tom Thumb, and was presented to him by the Queen of England, of course. Let Guillaume mount it in fine style, carrying a fine head and tail, curved neck, etc. Let the feet be so placed as to represent him moving with dignity and speed, and then make a noise about it. It is very small, and Guillaume must be careful and not swell it out. Keep the body small and slim as it was in life, for it was corn-fed and not a pusgot. That is to say, he did not have a protuberant stomach. Barnum's double underlining of the phrase "of course" about the pony being a gift from the Queen suggests this was to be the official story, but wasn't actually true. In 1844, General Tom Thumb had coveted an especially small and lovely pony that belonged to the Queen. His droll hints that he would very much like this pony as a gift were not understood by her, and thus fell flat. The next year, when Barnum returned to England from France, he advertised that he wished to buy a very small pony, and perhaps the newly purchased one was the pony that was now dead. As far as Swift's work, months earlier Barnum had expressed some impatience, wondering what the devil was taking the man so long to get the lanterns and projection screen set up so that his latest investment, dissolving views. Could be puffed in the newspapers and attract visitors. Barnum had seen a variety of new optical instruments and inventions at the Royal Polytechnic Institute in London, and he was anxious to be the first or among the first to show them in America. His museum's lecture hall could be adapted for these educational entertainments as well as continue to serve its traditional purpose with speakers, singers, and moral plays. Swift finally got things operational, and the dissolving views had proven to be a draw. But he apparently ran into problems with something called a megascope, which was not an item Barnum had sent from London. And Hitchcock reported Swift's conclusion that it was a failure. A megascope was similar to a magic lantern, but projected greatly magnified images. In addition, there was something amiss with the physioscope. Barnum replied to Hitchcock with frustration. Curse the megascope! So it's a failure, hey? I believe old Laudner got us into that. For my part, I never saw one and know nothing about it. The physioscope is more funny and laughable than anything you have, if properly managed, and it is all damned nonsense for Swift to give it up. He must manage it, for it is wonderfully good. Before sending off the letter, he investigated Swift's complaint about the physioscope and explained what he had learned in the March third edition to the letter. I have inquired at the Polytechnic about the physioscope, and they say it is always very hot, but not hot enough to scorch anybody, and that by trying once or twice a man can stand it easy enough. So don't let it fail again, for depend on it, it is the most laughable thing you have got. I have written you before that the focus will not reach so far as that to dissolving views, and therefore that you must have a separate curtain a few feet nearer the audience than the other. This description certainly points to yet another source of danger in the old theaters: overheated equipment. But Barnum was emphatic about continuing with it, and he was also determined that Swift and Guillaume should earn their keep. He advised Hitchcock, "You must not be afraid to prick up Swift and Guillaume, for as you say, they are very slow, and they get well paid, and should learn to move faster." Nevertheless, Barnum knew it was better to keep the now more experienced Swift on board. And he had already written to a couple of potential replacements in England to say their services would not be needed. Thus, he recommended to his manager, "You had better hire Swift for another six months or a year, 
And if he declines to engage, then it is time you knew it so that I could send you another man. Since the dissolving views had been successful, Barnum planned to get more glass slides for the chromatrope, the magic lantern, used to show them. A set of religious views he had previously purchased hadn't worked as well as hoped, since the inscriptions could not be made visible on the screen. With such glitches duly noted, Barnum wrote, I will attend to getting new views or slides for the chromatrope. I'll call on Childs tomorrow. I'll be careful hereafter to get none but good views. So Guillaudot and Swift now had their assignments ahead of them. But a serious and upsetting situation had occurred with another employee, a Mrs. Ronneback. It sounds as if her husband abused her, perhaps beat her, and had taken off with her possessions. Barnum refers to a bill, a handbill, which suggests that Mrs. Ronneback was a performer at the museum. Perhaps because she was married, her earnings had gone to her husband, and when he left, she had no money nor costumes to continue performing. Perhaps the husband had been employed at the museum and left her stranded when he took off. These are simply guesses, of course, since we don't know what Hitchcock had said to Barnum in a previous letter. Barnum suggested handling the situation this way, telling Hitchcock, I cannot see what benefit a bill would be to Mrs. Ronneback. There can be little or no danger of that brute of a husband returning, and if he should, he could not force her to live with him. I think that $75 or $100 would be wasted on printing a handbill, when a tenth part of it would do her much more good if laid out for food and raiment. I am quite willing you should help her reasonably for me, when she is in need, but I cannot consent to expend such a sum as is necessary for obtaining her a divorce, till I see more real necessity for it, and so you must tell her for me. On the subject of costumes, Barnum also let Hitchcock know that he had paid to have a wardrobe of Scottish Highlander outfits made for the fat children who would be coming to America, and that a large promotional banner was currently being made. He had also hired a man to teach the Fat Brothers how to do a question-and-answer act that would astound audiences and enable the boys to be performers rather than mere human exhibits. I have clothed up my fat children in Glasgow at a cost of about $100. I've got a painting-making which will cost $50, but it is a big one, 12 or 14 feet square, and to be in fine style, representing them before the Queen. I have them also nearly perfect in Mrs. Harrington's secret of the mysterious lady, and shall probably ship them for New York about 1st April. I have them for one year, privilege of two years, at one pound per week, and all expenses of themselves and mother and two other little children. They'll do pretty well. Though in previous letters Barnum had expressed empathy regarding the plight of the fatherless family and their need for income, his remark that he would probably ship them for New York about 1st of April hardly seems to acknowledge their humanity. Yet this plan to train them as performers was an opportunity they could not have realized on their own, since the mother and children were virtually destitute. This plan would not only benefit the museum's bottom line, but perhaps also awaken the boys' potential and make them proud of learning, an unlikely outcome in their present situation, where they were simply gawked at and barely able to survive. As it turned out, these Scottish Highland boys whose stage names were Charles and Alexander Stewart, did achieve a fair degree of fame in America. Among Barnum's new educational attractions for the museum were models, such as the one of Venice that he had sent with instructions on how best to present and interpret it. Now, he added, It wants talented and poetical puffing, 
and a man who can explain the whole, the canals, the gondolas, the Bridge of Sighs, the Doge's Palace, etc., etc. Barnum also described another kind of historical model that he had purchased and arranged to send from Scotland. Barnum had visited Stirling Castle, an ancient structure dating to the 12th century and located about 26 miles northeast of Glasgow. The imposing grey stone fortress is described today as one of the largest and most important castles in Scotland, significant both for its history and architecture. Barnum had been impressed by the sterling heads he saw there. These were 39-inch diameter, or 1-meter, carved oak rondels dating to the mid-1500s, and had originally adorned the ceiling of the king's chamber, until the ceiling collapsed in 1777. The carvings were portraits, not purely decorative elements. Most, but not all, of the heads survived the fall, but they were not reinstalled. No longer on the ceiling, their accessibility allowed for plaster copies to be made. Barnum related the story of his new purchase, a set of faux oak casts, to Hitchcock. When in Scotland the other day, I bought some large plaster of Paris casts taken from the ancient oak carvings in Stirling Castle. They are painted to represent oak and appear very curious. They represent portraits of Robert Bruce and other Scotch heroes. They cost some $20 or $25. They are round and about two feet in diameter. They will look very ancient and be effective, hung up about the museum. They should have a coat of varnish before being hung up. They are already shipped to you from Scotland, Glasgow, but I don't yet know the name of the vessel. Concerned about their safe transport and handling, he noted, they are in two casks, and the very greatest care must be taken in getting them out of the ship and to the museum, or they will be broken. If one or more are broken, perhaps you can have the pieces put together and get another cast taken from them in New York, and painted like the others in imitation of oak. The name of each is on the back. If they arrive in good order, you can stir up the Scotch and English a little with them. Barnum saw the casts as another way to bring European history and culture to Americans, much as he did when he commissioned copies of masterworks in the Louvre. He recognized that playing this heritage card would attract people of Anglo-European ancestry to his museum. Since few people could travel to see distant historic sites and artwork, his goal was to bring that history to them, along with the entertainments and amusements he was known for. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment. The play is a tremendous hit. Once again, we are back in the United Kingdom, focusing on Barnum's latest activities there as he makes the final arrangements for the opening performances of Hop o My Thumb, the new play starring General Tom Thumb. This was an exciting time, and Barnum was all out to hit them hard, the phrase he used to describe his promotional efforts. We will also check in on the preparations for the Scottish Highlander brothers, whom Barnum planned to send to America in April, along with their mother and siblings. And, on quite a different track, we'll get an update about the continuing threat of war between the U.S. and Great Britain, as their disputes concerning the Oregon country escalated. Sorting through these diverse stories, Adrienne found herself in a conundrum while reading the copybook letters, 
because suddenly the dates jumped backwards from the early days of March in 1846 to February 1st, continuing to February 21st. Consequently, in the next few weeks, there will be additions to stories we previously covered while Barnum et al. were in Scotland. It's a shame about the letters being out of sequence, but there you have it. Mr. Barnum must have inadvertently skipped over a handful of blank pages when he began writing in February, and later discovered his mistake going back to fill up the blank pages in March. This throws a bit of a monkey wrench into our following the storylines, but no matter, on we go. While Barnum was busy getting things arranged in London, General Tom Thumb was performing in Cambridge and Oxford for a few days. In the role of advance man, Barnum was putting his eggs into the London basket, and he needed to build public excitement and anticipation for the general's arrival in that great city, as well as to ensure that his schedule was orchestrated for maximum efficiency and profitability. Unlike today's theaters that book performances far in advance, bookings at the theaters in mid-19th century London seem to have been handled much more casually. Barnum had approached several theater managers and directors about the new play, and had even gone to the trouble of arranging a meeting at the home of playwright Albert R. Smith. Mr. Nash of the Surrey Theater was to come there and meet Charles Stratton in person. For some reason, Nash failed to appear. On March 5th, in a brief but adroitly worded letter, Barnum let Nash know he was displeased at being stood up, while also mentioning his success with the Lyceum Theater, and leaving open the possibility of a future engagement at the Surrey should Nash change his mind. Perhaps he gloated to himself as he enclosed a complimentary ticket for Nash to see a performance at the Lyceum. I was sorry that you did not meet the little general as agreed on at the house of Albert Smith, Esquire. However, I judge by your not calling that you had changed your mind about engaging him, and I have now arranged with Mr. Keeley of the Lyceum. Should it be to our mutual interest hereafter to arrange, I shall be most happy to do so. Please accept the enclosed orders to see the little general, and believe me, as ever, truly and sincerely yours, P.T. Barnum. Of note, Robert Keeley and his wife Mary Ann, both actors, were the managers of the Lyceum from 1844 to 1847, and their eldest daughter would later marry Albert R. Smith, author of the Hop my thumb play written for Tom Thumb. On the same day, Barnum wrote to an unnamed man, possibly a Mr. Horner or Honner, to let him know of his intention to withdraw Charles from a theater. He started the letter, penned a few lines, and then started again at the top, which resulted in a jumble of sentences on the copy page. But by dissecting the two tries, one can see that the first iteration informs the gentleman that he, Barnum, had engaged General Tom Thumb at the Lyceum, where they were to bring out his new play as soon as possible. The second iteration also shares that, but simply states, I think that at present it will be impossible for the little general to remain after next week at your theater, and would therefore advise you go it strong, in announcing it as being positively his last and only appearance there previous to his final departure for America. Presumably, it was a theater unsuited for the production of Smith's play. The latter part of Barnum's letter tells us about Charles's act at that unnamed theater. Barnum suggested the gentleman announce General Tom Thumb's performances as follows. He will appear and relate his story, sing a variety of songs, represent the Grecian statues, give imitations of Napoleon and Frederick the Great, and dance the naval hornpipe in costume. He will also appear in his new and magnificent Highland costume, 
which has elicited the greatest approbation from the principal crowned heads of Europe. The general's beautiful miniature equipage, consisting of an elegant small chariot with pygmy coachman and footman and drawn by four ponies, will appear and take the general off the stage. Less than two weeks later, Barnum hastily scrawled a letter to Fortis Hitchcock, letting him know that he and all members of the entourage were doing well and that they had been averaging 50 pounds per day, including what we take at the Lyceum Theater. The play had only run for two nights at that point, March 18th, but Barnum emphasized that it had been a tremendous hit, with all newspapers printing enthusiastic accounts. He asked Hitchcock to see that the editors of the New York Atlas took note of the various London papers, so they could copy the flattering stories in their paper. True to style, Barnum knew how to play up his success on both sides of the Atlantic. Now we'll turn to a letter addressed to a Mr. Miller, dated March 7, 1846. Barnum's connection to this man was a bit puzzling until several pages further on, where another letter to Miller appeared, though written five weeks earlier on February 1st. This contained enough clues to explain the relationship, but we'll start with the March 1st letter in which Barnum was responding to Miller's request for money. He received many such letters, so he has said on several occasions, and thus developed a kind of formulaic response using a tone that seems excessively polite. Typically, he explains that while he wishes he could help all his friends and acquaintances struggling to stay afloat, doing so would jeopardize his own family's needs and his business concerns and so on. That kind of language constitutes the majority of the letter to Miller. But the end caught our attention, as it was clear that Miller had been hired to work with the fat children whom Barnum was planning to send to America. By the way, the word fat, as concerns humans, did not carry the stigma that it does today. In the 19th century, when a person had recovered from illness, it was a good thing to be able to say that he or she was fat again. Thin was not desirable, and fat meant healthy. Of course, for Barnum and other showmen, persons of exceptional size were natural curiosities, from which they could profit. But this wasn't perceived as fat-shaming in the way many people would see it today. Barnum intended to show the Scottish brothers not only because they were large, but also because they would be performers. He had invested in teaching the boys a special trick to entertain people. As we learned from the March letter, teaching them had been an uphill battle, and Miller's plea for money may have been based in part on the extra time and effort he'd put in. Barnum told Miller, I much regret that the boys are giving you so much trouble in the mesmeric way, and although I am anxious to pay you for all trouble you may have with them, still, if you find they bother you too much, I beg you will give over trying to teach them, and let me know it immediately, in order that I may ship them off at once. For nothing now keeps them but a desire on my part to have them learn the new dodge. So who was this Mr. Miller? We learn in the February 1st letter that he was connected to the theater in Glasgow, and that Barnum had also hired him as an agent. At that time, the relationship was rosier, with Barnum telling Miller, I am rejoicing that you think they, the boys, can learn the mesmeric part of the business, and hope, since they are now lying still in Glasgow, you will find time to teach it to them. That part will help me very much. He was counting on them touring as performers, not having them stay for a long period at the American Museum. Barnum had previously expressed to Hitchcock his disappointment that the boys were not as large as he would have hoped. Thus, it follows that if their ability to entertain was cultivated and they moved from venue to venue, 
this would offset the paying public's letdown as to the boy's size, perhaps not quite as mammoth as advertised. From other letters, we know that Barnum had asked that the boys not be exhibited by their mother while awaiting the voyage to America, and he provided some money to keep the family going. That idle time, he felt, would best be put toward learning the mesmeric trick. Barnum's communications on these points must have been through and to Miller, and he was relying upon Miller to present a contract to the mother. He told Miller he would soon have it drawn up and send it to him for the mother to sign, along with two pounds or three pounds for the poor woman to use in the meantime, on account. Miller was also tasked with commissioning a very large banner that would be used to promote the boys in costume. To that end, Barnum advised, By all means, get the painting done as you say, representing the queen and court, and let the queen be in her crown and robes. Let the boys' features be preserved, but by all means, exaggerate some as to size and fatness. Don't let the painter shave us as to price. Let the boys be represented in the Highland costume, and when I come to Glasgow, I will get the proper costumes made for them. As we know from a later letter to Hitchcock, several sets of costumes were made, and the banner was nearing completion. But teaching the boys the secrets of the mesmeric trick was proving to be a stumbling block, and Barnum's exasperation is evident in the March 7th letter. We may learn more about how that was handled in letters to come, Perhaps the boys' instruction in the arts of the mesmeric trick was halted until they got to America. Mr. Miller also had an interest in having General Tom Thumb perform at his theater in Glasgow, which Barnum referred to in his February 1st letter. Cheerfully, he told Miller, I am much pleased at the punctual and businesslike manner in which you have attended to my affairs, and am happy to say that I have so arranged matters as to be able to give you a turn with General Tom Thumb either on Friday, February 20th, or Saturday 21st instant. Charles's father, on the other hand, might not have responded to this idea with pleasure. While on tour in another part of Scotland, Barnum was independently arranging for performances that Sherwood Stratton was unaware of. Barnum clearly did not like working with his partner, but nonetheless had devised a plan to keep Stratton happy. He shared the favorable arrangement with Miller. To quiet the father, who at present does not know that we are going to Glasgow, the general must perform the same night at the city hall for sixpence admission. Still, I believe you can raise a full house. If you do so, then you pay half of the ten pounds for the father. But if you do not have a full house, you shall pay nothing for the general, as I will pay the father myself. Ironically, while Barnum and his British contacts and acquaintances were negotiating business deals in more or less friendly fashion, United States and United Kingdom relations were increasingly hostile and seemed headed toward war. In a previous episode, We Have Got Quite Territory Enough, we discussed the issue of contested lands in the Northwest, particularly the Oregon country. This was the context of Barnum expressing his growing alarm to several of his American correspondents. His March 3rd letter to his two closest correspondents, Moses Kimball and Fortis Hitchcock, noted that news had just arrived in London that morning and the Britishers are beginning to threaten like fury. As usual, Barnum's language in writing to Kimball is the more colorful of the two. He abruptly extinguished his friend's hopes for success with the cocked-hat idiom, though offered a more optimistic afterthought. By the way, your splendid calculations of your new museum are to be knocked into a cocked hat, for news arrived this morning that Jonathan, meaning the United States, won't settle the Oregon question without a fight, and the Britishers swear they will whop us. 
Well, they'll have their hands full if they try it. Still, I would rather we could have peace. This war is a bloody and foolish business. I guess when you get the news of the repeal of the Corn Laws, it will be all right, and no fighting. Thankfully, war was averted, though settling upon the 49th parallel as the border between the United States and Great Britain's claim in the Pacific Northwest would take a few more months to accomplish. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.